0: podcast. I am Max. I am Rich. And on this podcast we will normally be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. However, on this episode we're going on a little redeployment. The final redeployment of this series and taking a look at Weird War Tales number four from 1997. Before we get into that though, Rich has a few things to say to you.
1: Retroactive history. I reached out to Sue Glansman concerning donating Sam's collection to the Ringling College of Art and Design as per Tim DeForest and she was interested. It was during this conversation that the most obvious solution occurred to me. The freaking Joe Kubert School. How the hell did neither of us think of that? It's only a couple hours away from where she lives. Someone could probably easily come to her house to look at the items. And she has an in with the Qbert boys. You know, maybe spreading Sam's art amongst several locations is the best idea. She has talked to the Billy Ireland Cartoon Museum in Columbus, too. And they're interested. Like I said, they're interested. We're going to save Sam's art one way or another, everyone. Intel report. ZMD. Zombies of Mass Destruction a six-issue miniseries published by Red 5 Comics in 2008. Script by Kevin Greviu, art by David Yukovich. With the financial, human, and political costs of combat in the Middle East growing, the United States military has adopted an unusual but highly effective new weapon, zombies. Airdropped into the deadliest hot zones, the walking dead of ZMD, Zombies of Mass Destruction, indiscriminately infect every last warring insurgent, on either side of the conflict. Specifically engineered to be photosensitive, once enemy infection becomes complete by dawn, both the originals and newly created zombies dissolve as a means to control widespread and accidental zombification. This allows live soldiers to enter and safely occupy the now combatant-free territory. However, there's always a however. This plan takes a deadly turn when one of the U.S. zombies, dubbed Zombie Zero, fails to dissolve at the expected time and begins to wreak havoc in the Middle East by creating others like him. This leads the U.S. military brass to send in a special operative to quietly take out Zombie Zero and his minions before their existence becomes known to the rest of the world title details for Weird War Tales redeployment. As mentioned thrice already, the 97 run of WWT was a four-issue miniseries by DC Vertigo with mature subject matter. This episode concludes the miniseries, but don't fret if you've enjoyed them. There are still two giant-sized one-shots from 2000 and 2010 in the pipeline.
0: Yes, there are. And uh, speaking of zombie zero we're gonna take a little break to uh go and help take zombie zero down and let you guys listen to a promo for another awesome podcast and when we're done and we've washed all the zombie blood off our hands we will get back to taking a look at the issue at hand
1: Do you like comics the 1960s how about middle-aged gay couples gossiping about their neighbors then, then you'll love checkered past a loving examination of dc's go go check branded comic magazines published from february 1966 to august 1967 i'm dr bob and i'm dr husband and each week we'll be your hosts on a trippy tour through mid-century four-color madness checkered past available wherever fine podcasts are downloaded for free
0: We're back, and as I said before the break, now that we're all cleaned up and ready to go, Rich is going to hit you with the cover detail for Weird War Tales number four from 1997. Art by George Pratt. Price $2.50.
1: The Weird War Tales title, War Tales and Stenciling Weird in a Weird Font, is an olive drab, fittingly enough. Under a bleak sky, a skeletal World War I French poilu stands in a muddy wasteland surrounded by barbed wire. A bayoneted rifle slung on his shoulder, a curved blade in his hand, and a gas mask on his chest. A French helmet hangs from his neck to one side, and a German and British helmet hang from his belt. Cover date, September 1997, date of release, July 23rd, 1997. No killjoy, comments and commendations, George Pratt, baby! Three issues out of four in the miniseries have been graced with his presence. I think this cover is more true to his enemy ace War Idol roots than last issue's run, which I still liked. I'm actually intrigued by the curved blade the Poilu is holding. Uh, To me, it implies the dead Frenchman may have been a colonial soldier from Morocco, which would be an outstanding touch. Great start, I say. Why wasn't this the cover of issue three, which could have had the built-in tie-in with Pratt's run?
0: Yeah, I gotta say, this works. And you nailed it. This is the George Pratt I remember from War Idol for sure. The abstract background of the blasted terrain and sky contrasts nicely with the stark but still somewhat surreal clarity that our awesome-looking skeletal soldier is rendered in up in the foreground. In fact, all of the details get less solid as the image recedes, getting more solid as your eyes move forward, naturally. Everything about this image sets the mood and captures your attention. This is a damn close contender for one of the top covers of the series and of the original run, in fact. So off to a good start. So speaking of starts, we're going to start off with the first full-length story in the issue, and Rich is going to tell you all about it. Warren Pease, 10 pages, script by
1: Peter Milligan, art by Duncan Fragredo. Old Sidney Greaves struggles into his coat and scarf as he prepares to go to the store. Don't forget the peas, his wife Rose reminds him. You always forget the peas. I won't forget the peas this time. I don't know how I've put up with you all these years. You never change, never an ounce of understanding. Better hurry before they shut. What, mustn't you forget? Forget? Peas! Stupid! Oh, I think we're going to have to put you away. Won't be long, dear, Sid says as he collects his cart and steps into the fall air. Try not to suffer a massive brain hemorrhage while I'm out. Sid always took the longer walk, past the church, the graveyard, the war monument. Lately, he'd seen it as a little victory if he managed to get past all those dead bastards without actually joining them. The names on the monument seemed as ludicrously distant as the dates on which their owners died. 1915, 1918, 1941, Walter, Stan, Arthur. He's infuriated to see two youngsters throwing rocks at the monument and shipping pieces out of it. My best mate died in the war, Tommy Gangston. His name's on that monument. Now you little sods are trying to smash it all to bits. You don't even know what we bloody fought for. One of them replies in a condescending manner. We are not hooligans, sir. We are concerned young pacifists making a symbolic gesture against the continuing celebration of war and the sentimental exploitation of the villains of the capitalist war machine. The other kid gives Sid a shove. Now piss off, Grandad! Sid hears the rocks crack again against the monument as he walks away. At the store, Sid knows he's forgotten something, but can't recall what it is. Later, he stands in front of an old Anderson air raid shelter in his backyard. It looked like a sunken gray tit in the grass. That's what Tommy had called it when he'd helped Sid build it. A dirty arse sticking out of the mud. A bishop's battered bullock! Rose had watched the colorful exchange, and Tommy cracked that she couldn't take her eyes off of them. Later that night, the two lads had a savage fistfight over whose girl she was. It was a draw. They decided that Rose would have to be the one who chose her man. Sid smiles in the shelter as he picks up a photo of the three of them. He and Tommy in uniform with Rose pressed between them. We never got to know which one she would have chosen did we, old mate. As if we didn't know. Sid picks up a Luger off the table that he nicked off a German officer during the war. I know it's a bit daft, but I'm an old dinosaur now, Tommy. They can't do anything to me and I want to see the look on the cocky little bleeder's faces. The pistol has the desired effect, and the kids are quick to apologize about before, but Sid isn't having it. I'm going to tell you about what the war was like. Not here. He brings them back to the shelter and ties their hands behind them. Despite it all, the spokesman from before is still a bit brisk at Sid as they wait in the candlelit shelter for him to start talking. A tear trickles down his cheek as he follows the Luger. He never came back. His mum got a telegram. It was like, the only thing me and Rose could do was stick together. I knew she wanted him more than me. I don't know. Maybe I wanted him more than... Bullocks! It's all bullocks! Never understand! Sid jumps up and gags his captives. Leave you little snut rags down here a few hours. Show sure you what it was like to be stuck in an air raid shelter. Maybe you'll think twice before you vandalize another war monument. You were a long time, Rose remarks as Sid unpacks the groceries inside. Cues were bad. Did you remember the peas? Sid curses and violently crushes the carton of milk he'd been holding, spraying its contents everywhere. I should have known you'd forget them. You do it on purpose because I like them. Sid grabs the cart and storms out. No, you want peas? I'll get you peas. Two packages of frozen peas sit atop the scattered poppies at the war memorial. She never mentioned your name, Tommy. Not after our wedding night. She was pissed. We both were. Her dad knocked off these crates of pale ale and... And afterwards, she said, I bet Tommy would have been better than that. Sid laughs as he pets Tommy's name on the memorial. Oh, she could really put the knife in, could, Rose. She never mentioned your name after that. But every day, every day, Tommy, the old cow wouldn't let me forget I wasn't you. And you know the funny thing? I never even liked you all that much. I only went for her because you did. He stands up suddenly enraged. War monuments everywhere you go, in every bloody town and village of the land. Bloody useless, bloody war monuments. Well, it was all right for you. You died. I couldn't bloody compete with that, could I? Grabbing the package of is a peas, he starts to beat them against the memorial. When the war was over, did I get any peas? Like bloody hell I did. She made sure of that. All I got was nagging and guilt and bollocks about peas. The peas destroyed, he picks up a rock and continues flailing. Those kids were right smashed a lot of them, ripped down the whole lot of the stupid, ugly, bloody... At that moment, a policeman runs up. Mister, what do you think you're doing? He demands no. As Sid stops to reply, he moans and collapses into the, hospi- into the officer's arms. In hospital, Rose clasps Sid's hands as, as he starts to wake up. Oh, Sid, I knew you'd come back to us. What's What's You had a very nasty turn, Sid, a doctor says. A heart attack, heart attack. You almost died. You're a tough old soldier. Would have seen off most chaps your age. You've been unconscious for nearly a month, sweetheart. Nearly a month. His eyes pop open. A month. Steady, old fella. What you need is plenty of rest, and you know, peace, 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 Sid. What's happened to you? Had a funny turn. That's all, love. Tried to dig up the past, but some things are probably. Best kept buried. Miles away, a full moon shines on an Anderson shelter. Killjoy. It's absolutely amazing how much time I can spend working on these scripts. I can read a story five or six times before I catch something. Like now, I was looking at the Anderson shelter on page three, panel four, the desolation of the shelter in the overgrown backyard as a call-out. But then I realized that the corrugated middle of the shelter was going to stop a nearby bomb blast. And it had to be dug deeper into the ground and have a heavy coating of dirt or sandbags placed over it. Now, to be fair, after the war, a lot of the shelters were uncovered and used for garden sheds, so maybe that's what's happened here. In fact, on the first panel on the following page, during construction, there are traces of dirt being piled up around it, but still too far above ground. So I'm going to stick to my initial gripe. Many of them exist to this day. They were rugged and flexible and stood up well to explosions. Over three and a half million were erected before and during the war in Great
0: Britain. All right. So comments and commendations on our opening story. I will kick it off and I'll say this is one that needed to sit with me for a bit. At first, I thought the story was really dawdling along with all these details like who wanted Rose more back in the day. Don't forget the peas and so on. I basically felt this was a three page story padded out to 10. And it kind of is. However, that padding is done so well that it becomes part of the charm and part of the very reason that this story works as well as it does for me. You end up falling into the cozy rhythm lulled by the pastel colors and incredibly lifelike facial expressions and body language until, bam, things start going dark. In fact, I think a shorter treatment of this tale would probably dull the impact of it. For art callouts, I'll go with page two, panel one, an excellent example of that comfortingly muted pastel world that the story blankets you in. Page three, panel one, for the impeccably snotty look on the little vandal's face. And page eight, panel six, where we can see the reflection of Sid's fingers touching the names on the monument in his glasses. I can see this being adapted as a short film, and I think it would win some well-known festival prizes in the right hands. As a veteran and historian, this story spoke to
1: me. It's a bit long, and there's no action to speak of, I know, but still. I loathe seeing vandalized headstones in cemeteries. I totally sympathize with the old guy. That's the thing about war memorials. There's always room for more names in the next war, especially in Europe, where sons often literally followed their fathers onto them. He's got a bit of survivor skill going on, too. Going on a quick sidebar, I visited London in 2000, and there was a small museum near the HMS Belfast named Winston Churchill's Britain at War Experience. They closed in 2013. One of the features of the museum was an Anderson shelter. You sat in it, and the only light was from simulated lanterns. There were speakers embedded in the walls. First, air raid sirens would spool up. Then you hear the spitfires and hurricanes roaring overhead to engage the approaching German bombers. Bomb blasts, anti-aircraft guns firing, V-1 rockets warbling. A chill ran down my spine. It was amazing. I couldn't imagine taking cover in these shelters nightly. These two little bastards deserve to starve to death in one? Of course not. But I'm oddly not too broken up about it either. So let's do this. Page two, panels two through five. I like the poppy wreaths the kids have knocked over and the way the years the names of the owners died scroll by as the kids hammer away at the marker. Page five, panel three, Sid smiling with the Luger. Owning a gun in Great Britain is a much bigger deal than it is here, don't forget, which is probably why the kids were so shocked to see Sid with one. Don't school with old vets, kids. You just never know what's coming.
0: I mean, you have seen Gran Torino, right? Actually, no, I haven't. i never seen that movie. But that being as it as it may be, we'll move on to the second story here in the issue. And uh, I'll let you know that it is six pages long. It's called Bad Day on the Sajo. Script is by Neil E. Barrett, Jr. Art is by Phil Winslade. We're going to kick off the synopsis with a little guest appearance from a friend of ours before I get going. There are thousands of nasty little skirmishes that never make the history books.
1: It is the clash of mighty armies, the great and bloody battles that men remember down the years. And why not? What does the fate of a single warrior matter in the course of world events? A warrior such as Jochi, for instance, who lies half dead on a scorched and lonely plain. A warrior who is experiencing a very
0: bad day on the Sajo. April 1241 AD, south of the River Sajo, in the Kingdom of Hungary, the Khan's Mongol armies under the great general Sabude stand poised at the gates of Europe. But one of his patrols has run into more trouble than it bargained for. Jochi awakens in a field of bodies of horses and men, vultures swirling overhead. He is the sole Mongol survivor. A disembodied voice berates him. Get up, goat dung, spittle of yak! You are not dead yet! It is Chagatai, his grandfather. Jochi is immediately humbled that the most revered of all his ancestors had come to bear him into eternal life. Slave girls and beer, yes? How very nice! Perhaps a silken cushion for your scrawny butt? Do not be in such a hurry, camel dropping! Your general Subadei has given you and your brothers a job to do. A warrior does not die until this work is done. Jochi's protests that he can do nothing because all the horses are dead are dismissed when Chagatai points out that one single great war steed remains and one stalwart mount is all a willing warrior needs. Jochi mounts up and heads back for the Khan's camp to give his report. All the while, Chagatai rambles on about his personal past glories. His casual warning of a mass of mounted Christian knights rapidly approaching from behind almost comes too late as an arrow thuds into Jochi's chest. Jochi's horse bolts, but the knights are on the young Mongol in an instant. Luck shines on you. The gods have sent you many foes. I, I cannot believe my good fortune, grandfather. One knight on each side of Jochi bring their sabers slashing down, amputating his left arm and right leg. Putting the horse's reins in his teeth, Jochi slashes back with his remaining arm, inflicting mortal wounds on the two knights. Rouse yourself, lad! A scratch is nothing to a warrior! Tis nothing but a scratch. A scratch? Your arm's off! (laughs) All hail the Black Knight! Keep at it, Jochi. Your task is not done. It is easy to die. It is often very difficult to live. The Mongol's horse charges down a narrow path, slowing most of the knights in pursuit. Most of the knights, that is. A saber slash from the leading knight removes Jochi's remaining leg. Jochi has no fight left as the knight brings back his blade for the killing blow. Tell you! Brothers in hell, that you were slain by Frederick Dubois Raymond, Knight of the Templars, Mongol dog, he cries before decapitating Jochi. The knight hears a disembodied voice as Jochi's head tumbles to the ground. Tell them yourself, Jackal Breath, I've got to get a little rest. For Jochi had succeeded, leading the knight straight to the Khan's camp where hundreds of Mongols were waiting. Who's going to have a bad day now, huh? Indeed. History Minute coming up.
1: The Battle of Mohi, 11 April 1241, also known as the Battle of the Sajo River, or the Battle of the Tiza River, was the main battle between the Mongol Empire and the Kingdom of Hungary during the Mongol invasion of Europe. It took place at Mohi, southwest of the Sajo River. The battle resulted in a victory for the Mongols, who destroyed the Hungarian royal army. What was probably portrayed here was the initial action. The Mongol force at the bridge was a vanguard sent by the Khan to secure it during the night. Hungarian forces found the Mongols unprepared and in the middle of crossing the bridge. They successfully forced them into battle and achieved victory there. The Mongol vanguard was killed nearly to a man, eh? with Thomas of Split writing, The Hungarians immediately charged into them and did battle. They cut down a great many of them and pushed the rest back over the bridge, causing them to be drowned in the river. The Hungarians left some soldiers to guard the bridge and returned to the camp, unaware that the main Mongol army was nearby. Arriving at the camp at around 2 a.m., they celebrated their victory. The next day, Batu Khan attacked. He and his brother Prince Shiban led a frontal assault across the river, while Subadai rode northward in search of a ford by which his troops could, craft, could cross and attack the Hungarians from behind. Batu and Shiban struggled to make headway, but then unleashed catapult-fired explosives that drove the Hungarians back. Once across, they wheeled around and turned the Hungarian position so it would be vulnerable to Subadai when he arrived. Then Batu ordered his men to retreat and line up in single file. Subodai's troops arrived and deployed in the same way behind the Hungarians, who, realizing they were about to be encircled by archers, charged out to regain their camp. Subodai pursued them and bombarded the camp with explosives, finally sending in its heavy cavalry. A column of Hungarians fled back towards Pest, but was pursued and shot down by the mounted Mongol archers. Europe was saved by further Mongol depredations by the death of the Khan and consequent withdrawal of Mongol forces to select a new leader. There you go. Once
0: again, the history behind the story just as interesting and cool as the little story we were just treated to itself. So comments and commendations on the little story we were treated to itself. I'll say, holy doubleheader, two excellent stories with fantastic art in a row. Yeah, pretty different style of both writing and illustration but each equally engaging and impressive. It's going to be tough to pick a favorite this time around for me, I think. The writer is not a name I'm familiar with, but if this is the kind of material they're capable of, I would sure like to be. As for Phil Winslade, well, I've heard his name before, but obviously have not spoken it enough times. Right off, we get one of the best host intro splashes I've ever seen. And the logo is pretty okay, too. So, you know, I'm happy going in. Overall, I would liken Winslade's work here to a combination of Hal Foster and Bernie Wrightson. Really, it's it's that good. Each page is packed with potentially overcrowded compositions with heaps of detail and rendering thrown in. And yet every image is not only clear, but full of character, and little moments of visual storytelling beyond just the conveyance of the main narrative. Maybe I should throw in a comparison to Sergio Aragones here, too, when it comes to filling pages and panels so well. A huge part of this is also due to Hollingsworth's expert coloring of these compositions. A lesser colorist could have easily ruined the readability of Winslade's work, but Hollingsworth not only retains it, but enhances it. I love the way the solidity of the panel borders just comes and goes throughout the story, adding to the legendary tale quality. And there's the lettering. Dual and sometimes triple dialogues are running through the panels in as many different voices. And not once do you lose track of who's talking, unless you're me reading the script. And then back to the writing itself, with its ironically charming tone during what ends up being a pretty gruesome sequence of events. Every panel is an art call out, so I'll rein myself in and just point out the image of the poor, sway-backed, knock-kneed warhorse on page two, panel four. Hi-ho, tinfoil! Away! The only knock I have to give is that I thought the amassed Mongols in the final panel we're all ghosts in the afterlife and not a mass of living troops waiting to strike, which I think is the only stumbling point for me of the coloring. They all kind of looked ghostly in the background, so it took me a bit to realize Jochi had led them into a trap. So that's behind. Shades of issue 9's The
1: Promise and the Battle of the Ice, which took place only a year after this one, 1242 AD near Estonia. Go back and give that one a listen. Another battle most of us in North America have never heard of. You know, as Rod said, (laughs) Uh, if I can't have Jess Jotelman, give me Phil Winslade. Look at that splash panel with the skeletal Mongol narrator with a vulture on his shoulder overlooking the carnage. Last panel of the story is even better of Joji's headless body still riding his horse to a hillside covered in Mongols as the nights follow. Looks like someone else is about to have a bad day on this Sazo. Page three, panel one. Can you not hear the boredom in Joshi's, yes, grandfather? Shut up, old man. Page four, panel one. Sarcasm. Barrett's writing is super solid, too, especially with the insults Joshi and the knights trade with each other. Also on page four. Desecrator of women, eater of entrails, fornicator of diseased sheep, molester of yaks. You know, you want to laugh, but the violence on the page is so graphic it kind of keeps you from doing so. Toss in Matt Hollingsworth colors, and who could want for more? This time period is way outside my wheelhouse, but still, good, good, good stuff.
0: And, spoiler, the only weird story in the book. And we're riding pretty high so far. Let's see how the issue ends up. Do we keep getting to ride high? Who knows? Rich is going to let us find out. Gee, I wonder, oh,
1: <laughs> salvation, spoiler alert, or not. <laughs> Eight pages, script by John Ney, Riber. art by Danielle Zezelge. Red walks from his isolated cabin in the woods to the well and lowers the bucket to water level. When he begins to raise the bucket, the rope snaps and the bucket disappears into the well's depths. Fuming and cursing, Red storms back to his cabin and grabs a rifle for his walk into town. Forgive me for losing it back at yonder well, Lord, but you know how I am. Last time I went into town without ventilating first, it was all I could do to not blow Lonnie Randleman's damn fool head clean off his shoulders. A squirrel on a tree chatters away at Red as he walks through the woods. Aren't you full of yourself today? Well, you just keep talking, mister. Run that mouth while you can. Red hates going into town. Folks were never meant to live all crowded up together like sardines. That's not how things were back in the garden. Lonnie sits outside his store of the chessboard, waiting to play someone. The two men exchange pleasantries. Although rope was what Red had come for, some taters would be nice. So would a can of Rotel. Saw a squirrel big as a yard dog coming down the ridge. Reckon he might stew up nice. He better be one hell of a squirrel or else there won't be any meat left on him after you hit him with that 30-06. My daddy didn't raise any foolish children. You don't shoot a squirrel, you bark him. Lonnie doesn't understand the term, but it doesn't matter. Red pays for the supplies and starts to return home, but stops when the storekeeper asks Red for a game of chess. I got the board set up outside, just the way you like it. Pepsi's on special, so is Rolling Rock. Red turns and comes to the game. Pepsi's fine. Anything's fine. Time passes, the game is played, and Lonnie finally concedes. Damn, if you don't kick my ass every time we play. You want to know why? Red asks, picking up a pawn. This is the game. This man right here. Red laughs into a silence. You know the soul's salvation, Lonnie? I would tell you what that is. When you're all lined up, you and the enemy, they come swarming over the hill at you. You pick your man and you shoot and he falls. Red pauses to knock over a pawn on the board of the soda bottle. But you never know if it was your bullet that did it or someone else's. That's the soul of salvation. Not knowing. He hangs his head and closes his eyes. The moment is destroyed when an SUV pulls up and a family of four get out. The father starts talking to Lonnie. Can you tell us how to get back to the parkway from here? This is our first vacation to your beautiful mountains. We enjoyed them so much. We were always getting lost. Rage swirls in Red's eyes as Lonnie begins to give the father directions. He knocks over the chessboard and runs home, leaving behind his rotel and taters. Whether or not it was your bullet, and you sat it down on him and eased the trigger back slow, that took off the top of his skull, the blue chunks off of his heart clean through his spine, that made him scream and made him stop, and maybe won the war for some damn king of color. Red pauses when he sees the squirrel in a tree ahead of him. Said I was going to bark you, didn't I? Son of a bitch. He raises his rifle and fires. The round hits the branch the squirrel sits on and blows it off the tree. The near-miss still kills the small animal. Red picks it up by the tail and continues walking. You never know. And that's the soul salvation.
0: You never know. All right. No killjoy for this one. So I'll lead us into our comments and commendations. Probably going to be mostly comments, just letting you know. (laughs) I'll say... This is a story that would have worked immensely better in prose than it does here. The art does nothing but hurt pretty much every element that the writing is trying to deliver. Reber is telling a decent, even potentially poignant tale here, but the drawings and coloring make this look like something from a bad day after doomsday piece. I've mentioned it in a previous episode, About this very series, I'm sure. But here's where one tick of 90s comics rears its head. Clever coloring and edgy slash artsy experiments with the art. Vertigo Comics was founded in 1993, so we're deep into their territory here, which was overall a totally net positive as far as uplifting and expanding mainstream comics. But with growth, you get the growing pains. And this right here is painful. Again, there is a downright touching story to be told here, and some of it still gets through. But with a better art team or no art team at all, like I said, it would likely have been told far more effectively. And as Rich mentioned, it still wouldn't belong in a weird war series, but it's hardly alone in that regard throughout this series and the original. What? What the hell is this? This is how you
1: win this series? Art-wise, this is easily the worst story of the run. We started it with a Vietnam War Nut, the outstanding Tunnel Rats, and ended with one. I disliked this story so much, I started writing the script with it. I'll start with the coloring. Everything is orange, yellow, or brown. Is it sunset? Sunrise? Is there a fire somewhere? It's 1997, not 2023. It's at the same time boring and oddly engaging. I at first thought that Zezelge was Jorge Zafino, who has a similar style and had done some Punisher work. Spoiler, I don't care for Zafino's art either. While I can't admire the pa- the panel layouts and the detail he puts to paper, the super heavy, heavy inks really distracts from the effort. Page 5, panel 5. What's Red Holding? A king? A bishop? With all his holy roller talk? I had to read the story to its conclusion to figure out it was a pawn. Reaver's writing grew on me a bit as I reviewed it here, but it still seemed to have no real focus. Sorry, I I didn't know what Rotel was. I had to look it up and find out it's a classic recipe of diced tomatoes and green chilies. Let me go into the way back machine for a moment. We were guest hosts on the Checker Pass podcast when they reviewed GI Combat 119, And I was a real buzzkill when I did a history minute on the U.S. Army execution of deserters during World War II. It's obviously not easy to draw the assignment of firing squad for a fellow American. Uh, Supposedly, one man per squad was secretly issued a blank round so you could rationalize that maybe it wasn't your bullet that was the killing shot. That's kind of the same idea here. How sure are you that you really killed the guy you were aiming at? So, okay. Art Carlisle. There has to be at least one, and there is. The very first one, where Red is trudging towards the well. And uh, seeing, uh, I'll just uh, continue on to our favorite ads here. Hope to get a little bit of a rebound after this gut check of a last story in the run here. Um, uh, Attempt, (laughs) as usual for the era. This was an ad-thin issue, and most of them suck. I had a strong feeling what my choice was going to be as soon as I saw it. And I was correct. Bugs buddy, Michael Jordan. It's time to jam again. Space Jam. Jam tonight and all month on Pay-Per-View. Max picked the Glimmerman Pay-Per-View ad in issue one, so, again, we go full circle. I haven't seen the LeBron James version yet, and I suspect at some point I will when I stumble on it on cable. Yep. You know, my son was young when this movie was out, so I watched this movie on VHS any number of times back in the day. Uh, but I just have to remind you, what kind of a Mickey Mouse organization would name
0: their team the Ducks? <laughs> I don't know. The, the, the moment I saw that movie in the theater and the moment that made me laugh out loud was the Pulp Fiction joke, where uh, all of a sudden, like, uh, Yosemite Sam and somebody else are like all dressed up in the Pulp Fiction suits with the guns right on the basketball court like that one was the one that actually got me to to actually lol as they as the kids say in the theater to this day and when i think of it even it still makes me chuckle so space jam great movie i don't know if you don't like space jam you're probably a miserable person and that's me saying that so let let me uh move on to my spotlighted ads for the issue and as usual i'm gonna cheat i got two of them just speaking of vertigo as an imprint and, you know, since we're ending our run on the main Vertigo miniseries here and Vertigo is no longer around these days, let's memorialize it with an ad featuring one of their best series they ever produced under that imprint. There's a full page subscription ad here for all the Vertigo titles, but spotlighted in the background is a photo cover graphic from Sandman Mystery Theater, which if you've never read it, it's It's not very much of a superhero title. This looks at Wesley Dodds, the original Sandman from the uh, you know, the Golden Age. And if anything, it even further unsuperheroizes his adventures and makes them more gritty and street level. And it's done in such an amazing style, art, writing, everything, all the way through to the end, that it's a can't miss. It, it is a can't miss series. If you have a chance to read it, it's on the DC Universe Infinite app. I recommend it to everyone. So that's my first little spotlighted ad. My second one, my bonus ad, ended up being my main one. It it turned out to be more interesting than I thought. We got a full-page ad here featuring a sexy cartoon lady in a ridiculously revealing dress. Think a ripoff of Jessica Rabbit, because that's exactly what it looks like, but with black hair instead of red. And she's, you know, lounging with a martini glass and underneath... Her in yellow letters, it says, it's hot in the city, especially at midnight. Spicy City, a decidedly adult animated series from Ralph Bakshi, creator of Fritz the Cat and Cool World. I don't know why you want to mention Cool World, because it it, it came out like five years before this and it was not a success. It's from HBO Animation every Friday night at midnight. From HBO. So you got that. And I'm like, I've never heard of this. I I never heard of Spicy City. Cool World was a failure. And, you know, kind of this whole period is like the last gasp of Ralph Bakshi. And I think of that period as everything he did kind of failed. So I looked into it just for the heck of it. And it turns out it was a little more successful than I thought. I'm going to read you a little bit of what I dug up from, from my uh, sparse research here. So says, Spicy City is an adult animated erotic cyberpunk television series created by Bakshi from H- for HBO. It's an anthology series in a similar format as television programs as Twilight Zone and Tales from the Crypt. So it kind of ties in to Weird War Tales here. It's another kind of creepy anthology show. It premiered July 11th, 1997 and ended on August 22nd, with a total of six episodes over the course of one season, so sounds like another failure, right? Well, hold on. The plot was described as a science fiction anthology series set in the futuristic city with a steamy side. Each episode is introduced by Raven, a nightclub hostess who also makes brief appearances in the Tales, so that's the woman in the ad, and she's a horror hostess, like our skeletal host in the series here, right? So. Again, it it premiered on July 11th, 1997, beating South Park to television by over a month, becoming the first adults-only cartoon series broadcast on television. Although Critical Reaction was mixed and largely unfavorable, Spicy City received acceptable ratings. The LA Times called the series Adolescent Humor for Adults, which is probably meant as an insult, but today, that's an entire industry, all right? Family guy, every— they ended up being kind of a successful little niche market there. The Dallas Morning News said the series exploits the female form. And yeah, unfortunate, but it, it, surely no one's ever had success doing that before, right? A second season was actually approved. This was going to go on. But the network wanted to fire Bakshi's own writing team and hire professional L.A. screenwriters. Bakshi refused to cooperate, and he took the series with him. The series was canceled by Bakshi saying, nah, I'm not using your L.A. screenwriters. And he walked. So self-sabotage was partly an element here in, in Bakshi's swan song era. But I was surprised this thing, if Bakshi had played ball, would have at least gotten a second series and probably would have continued on and, and we all might remember it. There's there's my spotlight as for the issue. And one was a complete surprise. But again, take any chance you have if you have any interest in comic books at all and like kind of two-fisted detective golden age mystery stuff sandman mystery theater seek it out so there's the ads we got those out of the way the stories are done the issue itself is done so i wonder if we have any last words about it and i do i'll say This issue has two of the better stories I've ever read in a Weird War series, in my opinion, both art and writing-wise, followed up by a promising but still not at all weird tale completely ruined by a misguided stab at avant-garde artwork. It all adds up to, in my opinion, not a bad issue at all. We've seen several issues of Weird War Tales, with just one stinker sandwiched between the covers, so I'm not going to judge this one too badly. It's got a great cover. Some fun and surprisingly intriguing ads for me. So, yeah, I liked it overall. Because I'm committed. Or perhaps because
1: I should be. I worked on the script to this issue a bit while on vacation, paddlewheeling down the Snake and Columbia Rivers on the American Empress. And this is the thanks I get. Yeah, what a way to end the run with the worst issue of the series. Yes, I hated Salvation that much. <laughs> I liked War and Peas the most, but Sajo was real close. The series as a whole was an overall success. I would have certainly kept picking this up if this was an ongoing book.
0: Yeah, I agree with you there. We certainly had our disappointments with, with the series between the two of us, different highs and lows but i would not have poo-pooed this as an ongoing by any means. every issue still kind of balanced out on at least something positive was in it. so i would have kept ponying up to the to the counter no problem. so there we go. that's it. that's our last words on 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 this issue in particular. so as we usually do here on the show now that we're done talking, we're going to move on to the dead letter office and see what other people have to say to us. but first Rich actually does have a little more to say. What do you know? Uh,
1: Ed Makowski texted the show account with, how have I not discovered your podcast when I'm a huge Weird War fan? Glad I did. Welcome aboard, Ed. I got to admit, ever since I started randomly liking and commenting on DC war content on other pages using the show Facebook page, we've been getting a lot more (laughs) likes and follows. It's, it's all part of the plan, Max. It's, that's what you keep me around.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, stealth marketing, very sneaky. You, you gotta keep an eye on Rich. He seems like he seems like the more stable and trustworthy one of the duo, but I gotta tell you, that's a ruse, okay? <laughs> There's this wheels turning in there, and and hardly any of them are are you know are good wheels. They they're all kind of rickety and, and sneaky and sinister. But, you know, I've taken a lot of road trips with the guy. I know better. So (laughs) moving on from from potentially untrustworthy figures to people who are incredibly upright and trustworthy and, and, you know, and and actually good. We're going to give shout outs to people who stopped by to give us likes and and little high fives on social media. And those people are over on Facebook. We got Mike Sturba, Peter Watson of the Earth 2 podcast. Tim DeForest of the ComicsRadio.BlockSpot.com. Luke Jackanetti of the Earth Destruction Directive Podcast. Dave Marchand, our good buddy Bill Mooney. And David Steele, also of the Earth 2 Podcast. Over on Blue Sky, where you can find me, as mercurial as I am in social media, as Maxpocalypse over on Blue Sky. Billy D, stopped by, our, our, our buddy from Magazines and Monsters. And all other kinds of podcasts. Stop by to say hey. The Telltale Mind stopped by. Hicks, who is Paul Hicks of the Waiting for Doom and The Gary Show and all other kinds of cool podcasts from a land down under. Stop by to say hi. And Professor Frenzy from the Professor Frenzy Show. It's a show, don't you know? Stop by to say hi as well. So social media and all that, we appreciate it. We'd like Seeing people come by and reminding us that there's folks out there paying attention and and giving us the old thumbs up. That's very nice. And over on Gmail, where you can write us at Weird Warriors Podcast at gmail.com, our good buddy Jason Zeller stopped by. He is the founder, but no longer sole owner of the Jason Zeller Binge Listener Award. And he starts off his email like this He says, Hey guys, First, let me congratulate you, Rich, on getting down to only needing two comics to complete your DC War comic collection. That is so awesome. And it is. Hopefully, you can find some decent copies that are not too expensive for those that you need. Yes, so say we all. Jason goes on to say, I really like that Joe Kubert cover. You can never go wrong with that. Yeah, yeah, that was a good one for that issue. Of course it was. Old Soldiers Never Die certainly had a well-worn premise, and I agree with you guys. The vague language of the devil's promise was going to come back and haunt the captain. And yeah, Max, life is apparently over at 35 years old. Yeah, it probably is, but you know, whatever, I'm going to keep breathing anyway. It was ridiculous how he was willing to call on Satan and give his eternal soul for perpetual youth, but yet is afraid of a court-martial and killing the chaplain. The logic, I tell you! Thanks for the history minute on the old soldiers never die, they just fade away line. As I knew that years ago, but had since forgotten. Twice Dead had a similar story of a time-traveling family member coming to save the protagonist, but it was enjoyable. I like how he came back to the scene of the crash to confirm his beliefs. I wonder if Lieutenant Link had gone straight to the crash site that day. Would his father's corpse have been a skeleton from years ago, or would he have just crashed? Just an interesting thought. The day after Doomsday, as we all know, the Barry of Bleecker Street story here he's referring to, was a fun story and a much different type of story from previous iterations. And yes, it was, and thanks for that. Certainly, there were the Prince Valiant vibes from Barry. I enjoyed this story quite a bit and look forward to the continuation, but nothing compares to my enjoyment and laughing out loud from Max's narrator voice, especially the voice for the witch when she took... took the cheese away so fast. I had I mean that story just inspired me. I had to go full into the characters on that one. So I'm glad I held up my end okay cuz I just do that stuff at the spur of the moment and I have no idea how it sounds. So Jason <laughs> says, "My favorite ad was the flashing eyes that shows a man with glowing red eyes. The ad says by simply blinking your eyes open and shut. They appear as streaks of lightning." The more you blink, the more sparks seem to fly out. But don't worry, the ad says it's completely safe. I mean, they can't lie in print, right? Not in a comic book. Take care, jo- take care, guys, Jason. So there we go. That's, that's a little Gmail, you know, that we got in the last minute here before hitting recording. And uh, that's it. Dead Letter Office is closed, except I should probably mention the lost cause of our RedBubble.com store. You know, folks, you can go over to... The fine website, redbubble.com, and you can search for the Weird Warriors podcast and hit that enter key. And presented to you will be a panoply, a myriad, a plethora of items that you can emblazon our amazingly cool and, and, and professionally executed logo designed and illustrated by Bill Walco of the Hero Business onto any of those items you may desire and have them shipped to your home. And then you would be the proud owner of that logo on some fine fine merchandise again of any form you could possibly imagine so go ahead give it a try at least three or four people have before you be be part of the big five be part of the first five customers be part of the big ten be part of something won't you come on all right so that Closes the dead letter office. I had to berate people after being so nice for like 35 seconds. I, I have... don't for, don't forget, guys. You know,
1: you know, you got the you got the Sam stars. You know, you know, you, you you buy something and you will get a star from the old Sam Glansman flag that he ran up the flagpole before he died. And you know what? I'm, I'm actually I am actually willing to double down, folks. If someone buys. The Weird Warrior Podcast pillow, I'll send you two (laughs) (laughs) because I'm just that generous. You need to
0: have that on your sofa with your dog or your cat sitting on. (laughs) And remember, we need photographic evidence for you to win the stars. So, uh, you know... Do 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 the George Costanza you know glamour shot. Do whatever you want, but have the pillow in that picture, and you'll get two star See, I was all with the stick because I was I was sick and tired of being nice for under a minute. And, and Rich always has he has the carrot to add to my stick at all times. <laughs> and I, I almost forgot about it, but yeah yeah buy some merch and you actually get something for it. Not from me because I've had it I've had it with this. But Rich will actually give you something incredible. For ordering stuff from the store and sending us a picture of it. So, hey, you know, somebody, somebody will give you something out there in this world for practically free. Okay. So that's it. That's enough niceness, except, okay, fine. Rich has a little more for you. He's going to give you even more. Okay. How much do you want from this man? He's going to give you a teaser for free for the next episode. Merry Christmas, one and all weird
1: war tales 48 glory hounds booty hounds a bad day for steve scout and so many good ads happy 2024 hope there's not a civil war 2.0 but this time next year you know what side we'll be on
0: yeah i'll be on my side screw the rest of you so you know what side that is That's the side of the Weird Warriors. That's the side of the Batlin' Bros. That will be the side of the Weird Warriors podcast where we promise to make war.